Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, when I was little, I had this koala bear. It was about as big as I was. And I would frequently hug the koala to the point where my mother had to constantly stitch it up in the back. No, we were not using it to transport drugs. She just constantly had to sew the back up where it came undone. And in my mind, this koala bear had a personality of her own. She was kind of motherly, obviously very comforting. I wanted nothing but to to hug her and carry her around. And it was very difficult to get rid of that koala bear when we had to have a garage sale. What was the koala bear's name? You know, I don't remember. I don't think, I know, I don't think it really had a name. I had other animals that had names, and I had a blankie named Blankie that was very special. <laughs> but I don't know that the koala bear had a name. Yeah, I believe I've talked about my most beloved stuffed animal on the podcast before. It was a puffalump mm-hmm. of a duck. Named Ducky. Uh-huh. You and I both shared a c- creativity with names early yeah. in our childhood. And I took Ducky everywhere until I lost Ducky. And that was a sad day. But Ducky did everything with me. Mm-hmm. And she had flying powers. And mom washed her when she got dirty in a pillowcase. Because that was how you <laughs> washed puffalumps. And for some reason, I thought that was pretty nifty. Uh, but we've talked about dolls before on Stuff Mom Never Told You, but we wanted to talk more about stuffed animals in particular because for you and me, and I'm sure so many of our listeners, stuffed animals are an integral part of childhood. Yeah. And they have a rich history and also equally rich psychology (laughs) undergirding why there is this appeal, the purpose that they serve, not just for being cute, and making for adorable stories in our adulthood. But also why a mom can't take a stuffed animal from her kid and wash it. Yeah. Why that causes trauma. Yeah. And why you can't just replace it with a new stuffed animal because they will know, I tell you, they will know that the stitches are not the same in the back. Oh, are you speaking from experience? Koala trauma? No, I mean, no, blanky trauma. I mean, oh. my, every time my mom washed blanky, it was like, you're going to kill her. But then gradually he got warmed back up to Blanky. Yeah, sure. And then there was the time that I'm pretty sure my father just got rid of Blanky <gasps> and made me think that I lost it. He was already playing psychology games with his small child. He didn't tell you that Blanky went up to, to the farm where your <laughs> old dog eventually ended <laughs> they up. They let Blanky loose on the farm to <laughs> roam. Well, let's look at a, a brief history of stuffed Animals, because it is a European trend that traveled to the United States. And it got its start in the late 19th century with a German seamstress named Marguerite Steef. I have one of her teddy bears. Oh, yeah? Not, not a, not a, like an original one, but I, I get ahead of myself. Continue. Well, in 1903, Steef's nephew created the first soft bear for his aunt, and uh, he came up with this idea from sketches of animals that he would do at the Stuttgart Zoo. And Steve's factory at the time produced all sorts of toys, and the first plush toy that she tried to make was an elephant that doubled as a pincushion. But this concept of the stuffed bear was revolutionary at the time because it took the plush aspect of the rag doll 
that was already very popular for kids, and rejiggered it for an animal figurine. Yeah, something that people could love. No, my mom is a flight attendant and goes to Germany, and when I was about 25, she brought me home one of these these Steve Bears, or however you pronounce their last name. And the thing is, you know them because they sew a button into the ear, indicating yeah. that they're they're the genuine article. And as a 25-year-old, I was like, great, a German teddy bear for me in my mid-20s. But now, now, thanks to the podcast, you know how special that I is. I know how special it is. And so did George Borgfeldt. Uh, he was an American wholesaler who saw the bear at the Leipzig Toy Fair in 1903 and ordered 3,000 of them. And by World War One, Marguerite had sold millions in the U.S., Germany, and England. Yeah, it didn't take long for Borgfeldt's bears to cause a bit of a craze. Uh, even before World War One, we have the bear market surge when the toy bear, which was originally sold as a zoo souvenir, became this huge novelty on, especially on the Jersey Shore boardwalk. And in 1906, there was an ad published in the magazine Playthings that said, any child without a teddy nowadays is quite out of fashion. Oh, no. And speaking of fashion, people automatically loved the bear so much and wanted to dress these teddy bears up. And there were all these patterns that you could buy for making different clothes and outfits for your teddy bear. Um, and by 1907, they were a hip fashion accessory <laughs> for chic urban women, kind of like how we would see women carrying around tiny dogs today. Yeah. Teddy bears back in the day. So I should get that teddy bear out of my closet at my parents' house. I don't know that it would be as on trend <laughs> in 2013, but you could certainly try. But Caroline, though, I'm I'm also speaking ahead of myself because I'm calling them teddy bears. Oh, yes. About the teddy part of teddy bears. Yeah, the teddy bear is part of toy lore. Uh, it probably originated with Morris Mitchum, a New York storekeeper and later founder of the company Ideal Toys, which I still, I believe is still around. Um, in 1902, he saw a newspaper cartoon showing Teddy Roosevelt, the president, sparing a baby bear on a hunting trip. Mitchum asked his wife to turn the bear into a doll, and he got permission somehow from Roosevelt to name it Teddy's Bear and sold handmade cloth bears from his candy store. And uh, like I said, this was all coinciding with that teddy bear craze happening. This bear, the, the fact that it was a bear and not a different kind of animal, was also a distinctly new concept because it merged the fierce with the cute. Because as Gary Cross, author of the book Kid Stuff, Toys in the Changing World of American Childhood, notes, uh, bears seldom appeared in 19th century toy catalogs, but when they did, they looked mean. And were apparently designed to scare children. Why would they be sold in toy catalogs then? It's like, finish your dinner or I'll sick the bear on you. Maybe it was something for Victorian era man caves. <laughs> I'm sure it did not exist. <laughs> like bill- For the billiards room. A oh, scary okay. bear. A scary little stuffed bear. Well, uh, during World War One, there was actually a ban on German imports in England, and so British soft toy companies flourished during this time. Companies like the British United Toy Manufacturing Company, which produced a number of plush animals during this time, starting actually back in the 1890s, but moving onward. And I did not really know the origins of one beloved toy, the sock monkey. 
Did you have a sock monkey growing up? I did not have a sock monkey. I did, but I wasn't a big fan of it. I was like, you don't look like a cool toy. But it turns out that actually the sock monkey's origins are kind of hazy. Apparently, when socks would get worn out, moms would take these worn socks and turn them into toys for their kids. And in 1932, Nelson Knitting Company got wind of this and began including a sock monkey pattern with every pair of socks. So when they wore out, moms could make that stuffed animal. And these were the socks with the red heel, which became the monkey's mouth. And speaking of very popular types of toys, like we have the the teddy bear and then the sock monkey. Um, On the heels of the teddy bear's popularity, this is in between teddy bear and the sock monkey, some toy manufacturers who were like, okay, President Theodore Roosevelt had his teddy bear. You know what we're going to try to do? We're going to try to make stuffed possums Hmm. super popular in honor of President Taft, who apparently, when he was visiting Atlanta, Hmm. where we are right now, ordered possum and quote-unquote taters mm-hmm. at a dinner, I'm sure because he assumed that, hey, Southerners eat possum and taters, and it caused a bit of a, a new sensation, and so these toy manufacturers were like, oh, we've got the next teddy bear. It's a stuffed possum in honor of Taft. Because we all know how adorable possums are. Yeah. They're so cuddly. Obviously, it did not take off. Uh, but it is it's hilarious that that one's stuffed animal legacy of poor poor Taft would have been just the possum. But moving onward, in 1930, A. A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh became oh, a plush toy, yeah. and that's something that's going to come up very briefly when we talk about why kids like Christopher Robin, the fictional Christopher Robin, mm-hmm. are so attached to toys. Um, but then in the 1940s, plush toys were scarce and mostly handmade. And then in the post-war period, there's more of a focus on safety, especially in the UK with the introduction of the British safety standards. Yeah, glass eyes on toys were replaced by plastic, which were held on with a newly developed locking system introduced by Windy Boston Play Safe Toys. And moving forward, The 1950s is when American firms started contracting much of their stuffed animal work to Taiwan, Korea, and China. So those old stuffed animal makers in the U.K. and Germany sort of started losing out. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, that gives you the early history of stuffed animals. I mean, the fascinating thing about stuffed animals is that... The bear has remained yeah. so lasting mm-hmm. throughout, you know, generations of childhoods. Yeah. I actually, I have a bunny right now. My mom gave it to me a couple years ago when I was sick, and I was like, oh, it's cuddly. So I keep it. Yeah, it's not too babyish looking. <laughs> we're not even going to touch on things like beanie babies or oh, how stuffed animals have become obviously more electronic in recent years with things mm-hmm. like Furbies. And so forth. Let's just stick to the let's stick to the classics. Yeah, Caroline, teddy bears, the teddy bear. Um, but what is it with stuffed animals? Why are we drawn to them in the same way you mentioned having that beloved blankie when you were a kid, mm-hmm. um, and that along with stuffed animals and dolls are referred to by psychologists as transitional objects. 
This idea was actually first introduced in 1953 by Dr. Donald Woods Winnicott, a prominent pediatrician and psychoanalyst in his paper, Transitional Objects and Transitional Phenomena, a study of the first not-me possession. And clinical psychologist Steve Tuber sums it up thusly. He says, the baby knows the teddy bear is not mom, but the baby can get a certain satisfaction. It is neither mom nor totally just a stuffed animal. And Alicia Lieberman, who's an infant mental health expert, goes on further to say it's a bridge between the mother and the external world, learning to deal with other people outside of your immediate realm. Yeah, uh, but when Dr. Winnicott, who was very much of the Freudian school of thought, first uh, theorized this idea of the stuffed animal or blanket as the transitional object, he first linked it to early oral eroticism, saying that children start by you know putting their fingers and their fists in their mouths, and mm-hmm. then they transition to you know these objects, whether it be a stuffed animal or a blanket that they then um, put in their mouths. And in that 1953 paper that you mentioned, a study of the first not me possessions, he includes this rundown of child patients that he has their transitional object and whether or not they had a good or bad mother. Oh, yeah. And there was one, it was something like stuffed donkey to attach to the mother, <laughs> like symbolizing the type of object symbolizing, you know, the, the closeness of attachment to the maternal figure. Thankfully, psychology has loosened up a little bit because Winnicott wasn't a huge fan of these attachment objects because it's basically like, you know, you need to cut ties with the mom, get in the real world. Mm -hmm. And yeah, no, those attachments were pretty much believed to be unhealthy and reflective of the mother's failing until the 1970s. But on the contrary, we know now that they're not a problem. A 2000 study in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology found that kids who had their beloved blankets with them at the doctor's office, for instance, experienced less distress as measured by blood pressure and heart rate. So I bet since I've been fighting off a cold, I could really use my blankie. Yeah, it might make you feel better. And because as kids get older, these transitional objects, especially stuffed animals, take on distinct personalities that help fulfill those roles as comforter and imaginary friend, like you did with your koala. And, koala. And as I did with Ducky, who mm-hmm. really was one of my BFFs <laughs> at the time. Did Ducky have a personality? Yeah, she was kind of sassy, um, but a little dim, and she could only fly after I gave her flying powder, usually in the form of Lipton iced tea. Oh. That I would drink, obviously, for her. Obviously. Well, you know, I mean, talk about as kids get older... As many as 25% of young women report taking a transitional object to college. That's coming from Dr. Barbara Howard, a developmental and behavioral pediatrician at Johns Hopkins. So the need doesn't go away. We, we still have it when we get older. For, for some people, uh, there is a travel lodge survey that was reported on by Live Science and some other media outlets in October of 2012. And uh, they surveyed 6,000 British adults and found that 35% of adults admitted to sleeping with stuffed animals. And it's not just women, because there no. is a gender difference as uh, kids age. Mm-hmm. Boys usually toss off their transitional object, their stuffed animal, their beloved blanket, whatever it might be, sooner than the girls do, likely because of socialization. Mm-hmm. Um, but 25% of men in this Travelodge survey reported that they take their teddy bear with them when going away 
on business because they found it comforting. And uh, on a related note, one in 10 single men surveyed said they hide their teddy bear when their girlfriend stays over. Yeah, and 14% of married men said they hide it when family and friends come to visit. So there you go. Yeah, I mean, I do think that there is, uh, like, socially, we think that it's, like, less okay for a guy to hang on to yeah. his stuffed but animals. But, I mean, that's still a minority of men who are hiding their stuffed animals. Right. Their lovies. Well, and that, but that's also self-reporting. That's true. Maybe the, but maybe the number is artificially low. Who knows? Um, but to get a little more into the psychology of why we would hang on to something like that for years and years and years, it's this combination of essentialism and an endowment effect, which is the idea that objects are more than just their physical selves. You know, that rabbit that you have is not just a stuffed rabbit filled with cotton. It is a gift from your mother. Maybe something I'm not, I'm not trying to put like, <laughs> I'm not trying to endow your what? rabbit with me. Are you trying to say that I talk to it at night? Cause I don't. But as an example, your, you know, if you were practicing essentialism, your rabbit would not just be a rabbit, but maybe a symbol of your mother who you don't get to see mm-hmm. all the time. And then with endowment, uh, we place more value in things when we feel ownership over them. So even though that rabbit might not have cost so much, if you were to lose it, you would probably be sad about the value of it because it's linked to your mom. I know, again, I'm, <laughs> I'm only using your rabbit as an yeah, example. I would have totally been sad to lose the koala. She was she was totally a mother figure. Yeah, it would have been irreplaceable. Yeah, for children with those beloved stuffed animals, it doesn't matter whether you have the exact same koala that was sitting next to it on a store shelf. It's not the one that it's you not own. My koala. That's right. Yeah, and even even when you know you mentioned that boys cast off those those loveys, those those uh, stuffed animals earlier than girls do, they still know where they are. Yeah. Uh, a 1986 study from the Journal of the American Academy of Child Psychiatry found they they talked to middle schoolers and they found that while 21% of girls and 12% of boys still use their security object at the age of 13 or 14 73% of the girls and 45% of the boys still knew where the object was they're still like yeah it's still under my bed yeah and uh even in adulthood there was a study which found that people experience stress just cutting up pictures of beloved objects. Yeah. Which I can imagine. I mean, they measured their heart rate and uh, their, the amount of palm sweat mm-hmm. and found that it both increased as they were cutting stuff up, which I can imagine. If I were to cut up a picture of Ducky, even now, yeah. I'd feel very weird about it. It'd be <laughs> kind, of, kind of blasphemous in a way. Um, but <laughs> some researchers have looked into the issue of childhood and neglect playing into attachment to stuffed animals, wondering whether or not kids use stuffed animals as tools to get through traumatic events, especially um, parental neglect, because they are those transitional objects, psychologists would say, between uh, being very close with um, a mother in particular as you're being weaned from the breast. Uh, and there was a paper that we found published in March 2012 in the journal Anthrozoos called Childhood Neglect, Attachment to Companion Animals and Stuffed Animals as Attachment Objects in Women and Men. And their hypothesis was that childhood neglect would be positively related to attachment to stuffed animals. And that was not supported like basically saying, okay, if you are very attached to a stuffed animal, it does not mean that right. you were likely neglected as a child. I was definitely not neglected. 
And I was super attached to a lot of stuffed animals. So. Well, that also supports, though, the study mm. finding that women are a little bit more attached to both companion animals, the pets, and stuffed animals compared to men. Mm. But I wonder, though, how much of that really is the socialization factor. Yeah. If we were just all allowed to carry our, our Linus blankets everywhere yeah. with us. Well, that's interesting, too, that you bring up Linus because three of... The, the primary examples I can think of in literature slash pop culture of attachment blankets would be A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh, mm-hmm. owned by Christopher Robin. Right. And then in Brideshead Revisited, you have Aloysius, mm-hmm. the teddy bear that's taken along to college. And then you have Linus. Yeah. The boy. It's all these boys with their attachment objects. Oh, that's true. It's a side observation. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Well, so what do you do when you've lost your kid's stuffed animal. Freak out. Or blank. You yeah. freak out. You freak out because you're like, oh my God, my kid is never going to recover. He's never going to stop crying. I need to find that thing. But it turns out that anxiety is really more the parents uh, than the kids overreacting and that parents might actually inadvertently encourage attachment to a particular object when they freak out. Stephanie Pratola, a psychologist in June 2012, told USA Today that kids can pick up on parents' frantic reactions to a lost item. And not so surprisingly, the Internet has also stepped in with resources for finding lost lovies. There are sites such as eBay that has, uh, do they have special uh, segments set up for yeah, lost I think they have boys? a special area, like a it's called Toy Box or something. Uh, there's also Lost My Lovey LLC and Plush Memories. Yeah, they kind of hook you up with people who will send you a toy. If you get on there and you're like, my kid lost her purple dinosaur, some other mom in Ohio can be like, oh, I have a purple dinosaur that my kid doesn't care about, and we'll mail you the purple dinosaur. And all will be well with the world. Um, but one thing, speaking, though, of gender, even though the studies that we found indicate, like we said, that girls tend to form stronger attachments or and longer attachments to these transitional objects. But I wanted to know in terms of naming whether what role gender played in that, whether or not, for instance, uh, kids were more likely to name, say, a lion with a masculine name, whereas we might name a pony with a more feminine name. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to find anything. About that. Just kind of wondering how, um, since kids are forming these strong attachments around the same time that they're really forming gender identities, mm-hmm. whether or not that's reflected onto their stuffed animal. Hmm. If it's like our stuffed animals ourselves, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe it makes sense. Does it say anything about, or, or, I mean, just like for, for me, you know, I named my duck Ducky, but she was a girl. But then again, she wore a dress now that I re- recall. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, my koala was a girl, and I don't think koalas are very gendered, are they? Or are they? They're cuddly. They're cuddly. It was cuddly, so it was a girl. I don't know. But my glow worm, I actually, I actually did get in trouble in preschool or kindergarten. I had a glow worm, which, if you recall from the eighties, they had those squishy bodies. Yeah. But that really, really hard face. Yes. And, and Caro was tormenting classmates by hitting some of them with the glow worm. Did, gl- <laughs> did glow worm have a name? Shoot, probably. Thrasher. <laughs> I can't remember any of these names. It's kind of tormenting me. Well, to close things out on this episode about stuffed animal, how about ending with some totally 
ridiculous <laughs> advice or it, stuffed animal symbolism. Yeah, your the website Your Tango uh, is trying to give some perspective to men on what it means if a woman that you are seeing has a stuffed animal in her house, and if she does, what what type is it? Because oh, that has so many hidden meanings. According to this, the woman that you really want to date, um, she should probably either have no stuffed animals, a classic teddy bear. Or maybe a raggedy old one. Those seem like the best. They say that a woman with no stuffed animals, she's practical. She's no frills. She'll probably offer to go Dutch and buy books from a secondhand store. And she probably enjoys a homemade dinner just as much as a four-star restaurant. But if she has a cheap collection from the drugstore, she's cheap with questionable taste and has cheap exes. Yeah, and watch out for the women whose beds are covered in stuffed animals. They probably don't get a lot of action, gentlemen. She's probably a neat freak, or maybe she has a lot of free time on her hands. Oh, (laughs) what bizarre things we assume about people. Yeah. I would say check yourself if you are cross-checking the Internet for information about what someone's stuffed animal collection means about them. Yeah, I mean, there are probably other ways to tell if someone is mentally stable or not. Yeah, by just asking them a series of questions. (laughs) On the the clipboard that you carry around on your dates. Yes, exactly. Um, Well, we want to hear, though, about people's stuffed animals, what they meant to them, and also for adults out there. Do you still keep stuffed animals? And if you do, why haven't you gotten rid of them? What do they mean to you? Yeah. I think right now all of my stuffed animals are at my parents' house, mm-hmm. but my mom has been very vigilant about holding on to them. And I don't think I could ever really throw them away. I would feel weird throwing them away. Just because of the meaning attached or because they have little personalities? Uh, I guess the meaning attached. Yeah. It would be, it would be weird. It would be, I, I think it would be weirder for, I, I would feel like I was breaking my mom's heart. Oh. See, my mom is like, get rid of everything. Every time I see her, she's like, you know, you still have some stuff in your closet at our house, right? Except she's also giving you stuffed rabbits. Except she's also giving me stuffed rabbits. I don't know. I'm getting mixed signals, Sally. Sally! Well, Write to us about yours or your children's stuffed animals. Please share share any and all memories this has evoked. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can also send us a message on Facebook or a quick shout out on Twitter at Momstuff Podcast. And now back to our letters. Yeah, here's one from Jennifer about our crying at work episode. She says, I don't see the issue unless it's someone, man or woman, who cries constantly, mainly because that brings into question the validity of their tears. Manipulative crying is never appreciated, but I don't see any problem with crying in general. Holding it in or acting like we're too tough to cry can be very harmful emotionally in the long run. Your comments and suggestions made it seem like there's still a general stigma against crying at work or in public in general, which I'm not sure there is. Perhaps that was the case for earlier generations, like you said, but I really think this current generation actually appreciates honesty of emotion. I don't see that it freaks people out, as you put it, but rather helps people realize that everyone is human and that we all have bad days. I don't know. I have to say that crying at work freaks me out. Even when it's me, (laughs) it freaks me out. But thanks, Jennifer. Well, I've got an email here from Dave, and he writes, I'm a man, and up until recently, I've spent a lot of time crying in the office. Sometimes at my desk, but when it got really bad, two to three times a day in the bathroom. 
And there is something that you didn't mention, and that is that there may be something wrong with your brain. I cried so often because I just couldn't cope with my responsibilities at work or at home. Six weeks ago, I was diagnosed with ADHD and now take medication for it daily. My situation at work improved very quickly, and I haven't had to run to the bathroom and cry since I started taking the meds. Other people may be clinically depressed, have severe anxiety, or other health problems. A brain disorder or a chemical imbalance often isn't something you can think or positive talk your way out of. I'm not saying that medication should ever be the first choice and that you should resort to medication if you're feeling a little sad, but if you find yourself crying uncontrollably and it's happening every day, you might want to talk to your doctor. So again, you can send your letters to momstuffatdiscovery.com. You can find us on Facebook, where we're always up to lots of fun, and Twitter at momstuffpodcast. You can also follow us on Tumblr at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. And if you'd like to visit our website during the week, it's HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 